0: Well, this morning, 195 different nations exist on our planet. That's a lot of people, and that's a lot of governments. You have the authoritarian government. That is the form of government that has total control. In Venezuela, Hugo Chavez would be an example of that type of government. There's the monarchy, historically a common form of government, the United Kingdom operates under that type of government. It's a constitutional monarchy where King Charles has some power, but a lot of power exists with parliament. You have the totalitarian government, and North Korea would be an example of that. That's not only control, but total control over the lives of even people. The Kim family is known for that style of governing. There is, of course, the theocracy. That may sound familiar if you're acquainted with the Old Testament, Israel began as a theocracy where God was her governor. This still exists in the world today. Iran would be an example of that. They blend a form of Islam with government where clerics and other high positions hold religion and hold governing power. Well, lastly, you know about a democracy. That's the United States. We are a democratic republic. Leaders are elected here to make laws and then govern on our behalf. But in the kingdom of God, our Lord has established a very unique type of government. It's unlike any other form you could find in the kingdoms of the world today. Our Lord Jesus reigns as the chief shepherd, and he appoints under-shepherds or elders to lead his churches. We'll learn about this this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And here we'll see three branches of his plan for church government. You know we've been working our way verse by verse through this letter entitled 1 Peter. And today we enter the final chapter, it's chapter 5. Peter writes, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness, of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock." And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a surprising passage. Just consider for a moment the letter writer. Peter, it's been observed that in this epistle, which is just another word for letter, Peter at last has told us something of himself. Back in chapter one, verse one, we learned that he was an apostle, but he spent very little time giving us much more info on his personal life. And that's probably good because if you remember the last time you learned about Peter, it was back in the gospels and it wasn't good. You have Peter the impulsive, Peter the outspoken. You have Peter the bodyguard. to Keep those kids away from Jesus. You have Peter the denier of Christ and the get-behind-me-Satan Peter who all but interfered with the ministry of Jesus Christ. But it's through this Peter that the Holy Spirit inspires God's plan for leadership. Well, secondly, consider the leaders in this plan. God's plan is that people lead his church. Have you met people? (laughs) Trying to shop in a store that's busy, on the phone with customer service, in control of 4,000 pound vehicles that reach 85 miles an hour or go as slow as five, trying to park those vehicles. The Bible says that people are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. They're malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. It is surprising that God would give something so precious, you, his church, to leaders who are people. Consider, thirdly, your life's problems. This is a surprising passage in light of the problems that you live with day in and day out. I mean, you and I come here on Sunday morning, we're looking for practical applications of divine truth. Last week, we learned, for example, six benefits of suffering. That has practical application. Next week, we'll learn about anxiety, That has practical application. But this morning, church civics, a passage on church elders, how does that impact my life? Well, I can tell you, first of all, that this passage, it should encourage you. The Internet today is filled with tons of stories about church leaders. And you would think, based on the articles out there, that every church leader is about either money or sex or some kind of abuses. I can tell you this morning that God has been very kind to this church because this church does not have those problems, not with her elders, not today. Praise God for that, that is encouraging. Which is somewhat surprising again because remember, they are people receiving instructions from a man like Peter making us wonder how any of this could ever work. Well, it's only through the grace of God that this plan is going to work. There could be no, really no other explanation for it. I mean, think about it. Sheep bite, shepherds blunder, and somehow the fold stands. God intends to make his goodness known through his government. Church eldership is his his plan for church government, and this morning we're going to see that. We're going to see that this is a government of the Lord, a government through his leaders, and it's a government for his lambs. And we'll begin there in point number one, verse one. It's a government of the Lord. This is a government of the Lord. By no coincidence, this passage on church eldership flows right after a passage on suffering. So we can just go ahead and remove that big number five, get rid of chapter five. That's not in the original text. Some of our Bibles have a little title in there. Mine says chapter five, serve God willingly. We can pull that publisher's title out as well. Because here's the flow of thought when Peter wrote this. Therefore, those who also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. You can hear how Peter rolls right out of instruction on suffering and rolls right into instruction on leadership. And that's because there's a particular type of suffering that's unique to the church leader. Leading, just by default, it places the leader out in front. It's very natural for the world to attack what is most pronounced, especially if the leader, assuming that he is, is outspoken. And it's obvious that he is the leader. And secondly, leading according to this plan, leading by divine design, it's not a democratic form of leadership. The biblical church government is not like American government. In the Bible, elders are appointed by God and not by consensus. In the Bible, they're accountable to God, not to people. And they're also always reporting to God. God is the constituency and then leading then, by devotion to God, it's inevitably going to bring suffering. The people aren't always going to agree with elder decisions. There's discrete information in some situations. It can lead to gossip or to misunderstanding. And I would add as well, it seems that there's a particular kind of suffering that's unique to the church member, at least in this relationship even when there are solid elders serving faithfully in their churches. I mean, this is a big trust that you give to elders. Sometimes there can be a lot of money involved with a decision that needs to be made. It's nerve-wracking. What are the elders going to do with that? Sometimes it concerns a, a stance that a church might take. I mean, we don't want to fear the opinions of men, but sometimes we do. And sometimes we, we like to do things the way we've always done them, but Times change, and that's hard. It seems like anywhere a relationship exists, suffering is nearby. So Peter wants to encourage elders. Verse 1, it carries a weight to it. There's a a gravitas to this verse. There's a certain kind of dignity. It's almost as though a a solemn pronouncement is made by Peter, a solemn command in verse 1. Peter exhorts the elders. This this concept of elder, it's not new to the Bible. It's actually grounded in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the elders led clans or they they led tribes. For example, Moses gathered elders together. He did this for the purpose of Passover instructions. Later, God commands Moses to take on 70 elders in Numbers 11. They're to assist him in leading Israel. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, we find elders listed in other groups. For example, in Matthew 21, there's chief priests and elders. In Acts 4, there's rulers and elders and scribes. And now, in the church age, we keep that label. And elders are leaders in local assemblies. They're called churches. Oftentimes, elders are older in age. After all, we use the word elder in our English Bibles, right? Older people tend to have more wisdom and more maturity. In verse 5, for example, we're going to see them contrasted with those who are younger. But that's not chiseled in stone either. And Paul told Timothy, quote, to let no one look down on your youthfulness. And I can see that Timothy was just as much a church planner as he was an elder, But nevertheless, there's no Bible verse that tells us an elder must be such and such an age to serve and that no one under is prohibited. That's not how the Bible approaches it. In fact, what the Bible does do is it gives us qualifications. How do we know who ought to be an elder? Well, look for these qualifications, says Scripture. He has to meet certain characteristics. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 list those out. The Lord tells us what to look for in these passages. And with the exception of maybe one or two of these, they all concern a man's character. Just listen to what Paul writes to Titus. Chapter 1, verse 6, the book of Titus, appoint a man above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, that's another word for wildness or rebellion, For the overseer or the elder must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's God's job description for the elder. It's largely based on his qualifications, his character. Well, the elder must also be a man. You heard in that list, he is to be a husband of one wife or literally a one-woman man. Now, that is going to be a role, the role of husband, that only a man can fulfill, contrary to what the culture might tell you. God has ordained an equality in value among male and female, that's for sure, but he's also ordained a diversity in function. We see that on passages in the family and now passages in the church. An elder must also be one of many or a plurality. Remember, the church isn't a monarchy or a dictatorship Jesus chose how many disciples? Twelve. And just as he chose those 12 disciples, the Holy Spirit will appoint elders, plural. This is illustrated in the book of Acts. Paul will call the Ephesian elders to himself. He's about to bid them farewell. It's quite an emotional goodbye. And he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God. Their role is to shepherd. That's the title. That's the action. In our Bibles, the word can also appear as pastor. These words are interchangeable. Elders are pastors, are overseers. And Peter, we learn now, back to our passages, one of them. In verse 1, he identifies with the elders, and he does so in three different roles. He says, first, I am your fellow elder. Now notice here, Peter is not on the throne of a castle barking out orders to the peasants in the field. No, that is not Peter. Peter is a man here of marked humility. We might say that he's in the trenches alongside these elders. Early in the letter to Peter, he, from Peter, he's writing to people in Pontus and Galatia and Asia and Bithynia and, and places far abroad in modern-day Turkey. He's like, I'm there with you. I am a fellow elder where you are. What else does he say here? I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. We get our English word martyr from the word witness, which may create two problems potentially with this claim. First, how in the world is Peter a martyr? Those that are martyrs aren't often around to tell you that they're martyrs. Secondly, how's he a witness? Wasn't he absent from the scene at the cross? Well, I'll tell you this, the Greek word for martyr can also be translated as a testifier to affirm or to attest to, so certainly there's room for the claim that he's making here. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul calls God as witness to my soul. In other words, listen, Corinth, God can testify, he can affirm my love for you. And more than that, we know that Peter did witness the sufferings of Jesus There is an emphasis in the New Testament on the sufferings of Jesus at the cross, which is right and that is true, but our Lord suffered throughout his entire life. Particularly in his ministry, his family dismissed him, and his leaders rejected him. And his fellow Israelites, the very ones he came to save, they refused him. And Peter witnessed these sufferings in his Lord. And he testifies to the sufferings that he's witnessed. And thirdly, notice that he's a partaker of the glory to be revealed. If you look back with me at chapter 4, verse 13, Peter used a word very close to this word, the word is share, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Here he's trying to say, Listen, this is a a, a, a future promise I'm making to give you a present hope. Similar words used in chapter 5, verse 1. He's a partaker of the glory to be revealed. There is a future promise. Keep your present hope. So in verse 1, Peter's introducing us to God's form of church government. And he's going to give us some more info on that in just a moment. But what I want you to see here is is that God has ordained elders as his church leaders. The Bible elsewhere We are familiar with it. As mentioned, a second group called deacons. We might say that their focus is on the physical needs while elders care for the spiritual needs. That's often been the summary. But this idea of oversight, pastoring, it's delegated to elders. And you notice in the Bible that God is not ordaining this to any other individual. God does not appoint a pope or a president or a CEO God appoints no group. There's no board or committee. There's no other group or council that should lead a church. Biblical church leaders, those who are caring for and leading God's people, they should be elders or deacons. These are men who meet the qualifications for the office and then do the work of the office. Anything else here in the Scripture could be obscuring what the New Testament teaches. It could be confusing. It can be extra biblical or even opposed to what the Bible's given us. And I say all this because I think it's not unusual to have our own ideas about government. We're an independent American people, individuals. And I think that people even have really good ideas about church government, ideas that have worked historically. But again, what I want to emphasize here is that that's not our department. God has given us. His plan for church government—we'll call it church civics this morning—how a church ought to run. His idea is a good idea; it's the best idea. So, church elders are God's plan for His government. In the verses two through four, we're going to see that He governs through His leaders. This is a government through His leaders. Already, we've tapped into a few different words for elders or leaders this morning. We've called them overseers or pastors. Peter's now going to switch gears and go to, a, to an imagery, a particular kind of imagery. And he's going to go back to the ancient Near East to give us this next picture. And you're going to see here in a moment that what Peter gives us is not a doctor. The elder's role is more than that of a doctor. The image here is not of an executive. After all, churches aren't a business. And he's not going to refer to a professor because you may be misled in thinking that we are professionals. No, Peter steps out of the city and he goes out of the boardroom and he goes away from the campus. He goes into the country and down a country path into a field. And he goes to a vocation that's happening under the elements. It's a vocation that's persisting no matter the weather It's a vocation that's quite humble in its return. And if I can be frank with you, it's a vocation that stinks. Peter speaks of shepherding. When he speaks of elders, when he thinks of leaders, he thinks of shepherds. Church leaders are shepherds. And to his shepherds, to our shepherds this morning, to to Jared and to Doug and to Rob, Peter gives you, he gives us this charge. Shepherd the flock of God among you. The word shepherd is both a noun and a verb. It's a person, the shepherd is a person, but it's also an activity. It's very much like the term pastor, by no coincidence. In fact, the word pastor can used, be used interchangeably with this word for shepherd. What appears in your Bible in English, it's always dependent on the context let me give you an example of this. It's pretty neat in John chapter 10 verse two. Jesus says, "He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep." Like our passage this morning, the, the image is agrarian. They're out there with the flocks. It'd be unusual for him to says, to say, "He who enters by the, the door is a pastor of the sheep." It doesn't quite fit. But over in Ephesians chapter four verse 11, Paul writes that God gave the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. That word pastors is the same word used for shepherds, but it's given in English as pastors. It makes sense in the context. The point I'm trying to make is that shepherds are pastors and pastors are shepherds. It's not because their dads were pastors or because they earned a seminary degree or the state gave them a certificate. No, it's because they are elders, Elders are shepherds who shepherd the church. To go out into that field where Peter stands and to borrow from that imagery, the elder, the pastor, tends for or cares for. They lead, they guide, they protect, they feed. In verse 2, Peter describes shepherding as exercising oversight. They are watching over. This imagery is further advanced In verse 2, then verse 3, by the word flock. Peter describes you, the church, as a flock. What do you think about that? Aren't there other images you'd rather have? Maybe like a lion, a grizzly, or an eagle. You and I know the reputation of sheep. We know no professional sports team calls themselves the sheep. <laughs> it's not a very intimidating image on the Jumbotron. Well, we know the reputation of sheep, so we don't need to harp on all of their weaknesses this morning, but I do wanna stress their strengths. Sheep are quite valuable. They're known for producing milk and wool. Sheep are important to the environment. They're very good at restoring grasslands, for example. They're important to their shepherd. They're adaptable animals. They're easy to fence. They're fun to raise as pets. The imagery of sheep is a good choice. But more than that, this is so important because God describes himself as a shepherd. That's what makes this most meaningful. Elders are to mimic the role of the shepherd. As God is a shepherd to his sheep, so too are elders to be a shepherd to his sheep. Elders are to make sheep, as God does, lie down in green pastures and lead them beside quiet waters. Elders exist to help sheep restore their souls. Elders are to restore souls. In the case where a sheep wanders away, elders are supposed to to bring them back or call them home. Elders are to guide sheep in the paths of righteousness— They're pointing to paths for living out biblical Christianity. They're to walk beside sheep in the shadow of death. Solitude, brothers and sisters, it's unnecessary in trials in the Christian life. Shelters, or excuse me, um, elders are to provide comfort. When sheep are in sin, when they're suffering, when there's loss, they're there to provide comfort. They exist to feed sheep. To serve up the Word of God to the people of God, elders should shepherd the church. Now, through the rest of verse 2 and into verse 3, we learn about the elders, about their motive and their manner for ministry. We're going to be given two motives, and then we're going to be given the manner on how they ought to do ministry. And there's a certain cadence to what Peter does now as he's writing. Each of these priorities that he sets forth is going to be a contrast. It's going to make three pairs. Each begins with a not or a don't do this, and then he comes back with the word but as a contrast, but do this or but be this. And the first motive concerns the elder's desire or the shepherd's desire. An elder must desire the work. This is, in fact, where the qualifications begin in 1 Timothy 3. We might think that Paul would start firing off qualifications of character, but he doesn't. He starts off this way. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. He begins with desire. That's what Peter does as well, by the way. He's to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not under compulsion. The shepherd is not to be constrained to have to do the work. He shouldn't be pressed into service and forced or coerced to shepherd. Instead, he's to serve voluntarily. This is why it's a good idea not to set quotas for elders in a church. Some churches will say we need four elders or we need 14 elders. What happens if God isn't calling the number? We determined. We go out and find him. Hey, Joe, Joe, We need 14 guys, we have 13, you gotta serve. That's not a good way to go about finding elders. We want men who serve voluntarily, so we never put a man in a position where he's doing it involuntarily. And let me add this, when it comes to this qualification, when when it is God who moves the desires in a man, that elder is more likely to say when things get rough, he's not gonna quit because he's shepherding out of his desire to do it. I saw the other day a clip of a car driving along a road and this man has his video camera going as he's driving and he encounters in the distance a herd or a flock of sheep and a shepherd alongside the road. And as the car approaches, the flock gets spooked and they take off running. And they actually ran over the shepherd and they ran down this path off to the side of the road. Well, the car slows and stops but one sheep, it turns around And he comes back and rams into the shepherd. Almost as a way of telling him that he's a terrible leader. (laughs) Well, In the church, we need shepherds who desire the work. Because there are times when sheep get aggressive. Suffering, to be fair, comes not only from sheep. Suffering comes from all kinds of corners the elder himself will find his decisions to be imperfect the elder himself will have to work out his own mistakes i create my own problems i need to resolve let alone other things coming at me from the world and so on so it's very helpful for the man to to desire the work in fact it's the call of scripture upon his life to desire the work means he's going to hang in there he's going to stand in there when things get tough And notice here that he's shepherding voluntarily. It's not according to the will of men, not according to the will of society, but it's according to the will of God. Look then at the second motive. This is the end of verse 3. The elder shepherds, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And this concerns greed. Your King James Version reads filthy lucre. That does not sound like something you want in your wallet. Peter does not want elders in it, quote, for the money. No, he wants people to, to be in it because they love people and they love the Lord. Sort of game, I go even further than that. Maybe it's a dishonest gain. It could be materially or in terms of influence or popularity. He says, set those things aside and shepherd with eagerness. There ought to be a zeal about the work, an excitement or an enthusiasm, says Peter. And if we're going to borrow from the first part of the contrast, this would be a holy zeal that he ought to have. And he'd be viewing gain here not as a gain for himself, but to see his flock gain. There's an excitement in seeing the believer grow and the believer gain. And that then brings us to the manner or the how of shepherding. In verse 3, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That word lording, that's a style of government reserved for secular society. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice that last verse. Jesus is Lord, and he lords over his people. He shepherds them, but how does he do it? By coming to serve, and by giving his life for them. And that then is the pattern for the elders. By the way, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to know about this Jesus. The statement that he just made about himself. He gave his life for you. He didn't come to judge or to condemn the first time. No, he came to serve you by giving his life for you. He died for your sin. He rose again on your behalf. He brings all who believe in him with him into his heaven when they pass. And you need to meet this Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Especially if you've had a hard time with religion or a hard time with Christianity. Christianity will fail, the church will fail, we're imperfect, but Jesus Christ is not. He is perfect. and You will never meet anyone more kind and more loving and more forgiving than this Jesus. That's a message we need to remember as Christians as well, isn't it? We need to remember this about our Lord. In fact, Peter needs his elders to remember this about their Lord. Now look at what he does in verse 4. He reminds them, when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus is the chief shepherd. We might say that his elders, church leaders, are under-shepherds. They're just working for the owner of the flock. I think God has predicted or said this much back in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, By the way, Ezekiel 34 is a chapter to read if you want to learn about how not to elder. In place of all the corruption happening and all the negligence happening in the nation of the time, God promised, verse 23, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. What a beautiful prediction of Jesus. And he promises now this Jesus to award his elders a certain crown on that day. It's called the unfading crown of glory in our passage. The New Testament promises five different crowns. There's the imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25 that probably refers to eternal life given broadly to the church. There's the crown of exaltation in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. That seems to be a, a crown dealing with joy over people saved. There's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. That, that deals with perseverance. There's the crown of life in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. There Jesus is addressing a church called Smyrna. He says, quote, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And in our passage, 1 Peter 5, verse 4, it's the crown of glory, and that's awarded to faithful elders. Some believe that all of these crowns refer to just eternal life in general. There's not anything particularly specific about them. But if there is something specific about it, we need to remember Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. This is a really fascinating scene in light of this discussion on crowns. It is a scene that is yet to occur in history. In the book of Revelation, John has given us a vision of what is yet to come. And he has this vision of heaven. It's, the world is on the brink of a great tribulation. And John writes the 24 elders, there's a lot of different views on what these elders are in John. They're probably not the elders as we're referring to them this morning. But these 24 elders will fall down before Jesus who sits on the throne and will worship him and will cast their crowns before him. What? They're throwing the crowns they've been given back at the giver? You remember the story about Martha excuse me, it's Mary, Martha's sister, when she got that very expensive bottle of perfume and she breaks it open, that means you can't close it, and she dumps it on Jesus, she pours it on his head to anoint him. That had to be about the most valuable thing she'd ever owned, probably the most valuable thing she'd ever been given, and she gave it to Christ. Maybe I should ask this another way. Is there anything else we would do with these things? what is most valuable to us, these things that really belong to Jesus to begin with, this Lord who is most precious to us, would we not give our crowns to him? Would we not return these great things he's given us right back to him? Now listen, I don't know how all this is gonna shake out with crowns and such in the future. But I wanna tell you that you have elders at this church who deserve theirs. Jared owns a business, but his heart is for the church. His heart is for the church because he loves Jesus Christ. Doug redefines the term retirement. (laughs) Doug loves to serve the Lord, doing whatever he can for the Lord. He brings a great wisdom and blessing to the elder team, but he does it because he loves Christ. Jonathan, who's not with us today, but no doubt is tuning in online. When God called him to be an elder, he changed his life again. I mean, he's all in two feet wrestling with the call and what it means to be an elder, and he's doing it, but it's because he loves Christ. And Rob, for all of the challenges, the workplace, this man is all in on the church. It will not deter him, his workplace, from the work that he does here as an elder, but it's because he loves Christ. And praise the Lord, we have elders at this church who love Christ and who want to do government in his way. While well, the Lord is governing this church, through these men. And he's governing for you. It's our third and final point this morning. It comes from verse five. This is a government for his lambs. This message today is not only about elders and their work, it's also a message about you and your work. In verse five, you notice that Peter's now turning and he's addressing a different group of people. In the first four verses he wrote to elders, he now writes to quote young men. Now, my translation isn't the best on this. The word for men is not in the original text. Some of your Bible versions, maybe you have the King James Version or an ESV or NIV, they do a better job with this. You who are younger, or as the King James says, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. The point here is that elders are are generally probably older and that the congregations are generally younger. And if the elders were to relate to the church according to verses 2 and 3, then verse 5 is how the church relates to the elders. One other argument that supports a more general reading of this, it comes from those two groups themselves. Notice when Peter wrote about elders, he wasn't referring to a demographic of age. He wasn't saying it's, it's these senior saints alone. No, that's not what he meant when he said it. And since the group in verse 5 is relating back to the group in verse 1, again, the word likewise is connecting them, it would make sense to interpret the group of verse 5 the same way we handled the group of verse 1. It's not a demographic of age again. It's not like, listen, all you men who are 25 and under. No, that's not what Peter's saying here. It'd be a general group who are not elders. Generally, the group is younger. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. This could be read as, submit yourselves to the elders. Despite natural inclinations, despite cultural doctrines, Peter is a huge advocate for submission. we've encountered this already in the letter. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, he calls citizens to submit to the government. In chapter 2, verse 18, servants are submit to their masters. In chapter 3, verse 1, wives are to submit to husbands. Now, in verse 5, the church is to submit to elders. And what he's doing here is calling for a willing, voluntary decision to put oneself under the authority of another. And with that said, the Bible gives that person, that church, a way to communicate when there's disagreement. The Bible gives a pattern for conflict resolution when that happens. The Bible even gives an obligation if elders lead in sin. But we also recognize that we all have an equal obligation here. After all, the Lord's plan for leadership is not that of a dictatorship or some kind of monarchy. Rather, he says, all of us, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we keep running into these one another passages in Peter. He's a big advocate for the people of God. And this is one way that God works out our salvation. We may call it a means of grace. Different ways that God is working out our sanctification. To be clear, when you were at home alone, When you are having a quiet time, a devotional time, God is working in you. He is working out that salvation in you. But don't miss the rest of the plan. Whenever you're bumping up against other Christians, when you're faithfully obeying God's commands for the one another, God is at work in you as well. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. What do you need to do that? You need a one another. You need others. I saw on the news that last week a man named Bear Gryllis was baptized in the Jordan River. He's a popular survivalist. You may recall his show a few years ago entitled Man vs. Wild. Now, this is one of those guys that you could drop him into Antarctica with a spool of thread and a stick of butter and he'd live six months. (laughs) He's that type of guy. So on his social media announcement, when he was baptized, he said this. He says, quote, our job is to stay close to Christ and to drop the religious stuff, to drop the fluff. That is spot on so far. As far as that goes, that sounds good. But listen to what he says next. To drop the religious stuff, to drop the fluff, to drop the church if you need to. Because that means so many different things to people anyway. That's called a formal fallacy, where he began with a premise which is true, but he ended with a conclusion that is false. You and I must stay close to Christ. That is right. But here's where he erred. We only do so in Christ by seeing what Christ calls for us to do and then going and doing that. We don't drop the church to stay close to Christ. We cling to the church to stay close to Christ. And you can test this out in verse 5. How many people grow in humility sitting at home streaming Netflix? How many people grow in humility stocking up for themselves in this life? How many people grow in humility spending time alone on their hobbies? We need one another, says Peter. It's his means of grace. It's his process of sanctification. It's going to stretch us. It's going to challenge us. At times, it'll be uncomfortable. To walk in this, you're going to need to dress a certain way. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. In Peter's time, what one wore to communicated something about a person, their social standing. It, it also said something in terms of a badge of what they were about. The believers to be about humility. Notice in verse 5 that he's dropped the distinction now altogether between elder and between church member, between shepherd and sheep. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's elder to elder, member to member, member to elder, elder to member. He says, "Clothe yourselves with humility." Well, this text this morning has summarized God's plan for his church. Not only the roles for those who are leading, but also a role for those being led. So as a test, a fairly easy one question test, we learned that God's plan for government is the office of anyone. It starts with the an knee and ends with elder. <laughs> All right, elder. That's right. It's a one-question exam you get an a plus in church civics so in conclusion just remember most of all that that god's plan for government are elders and that there will be times where you'll be happy with elders you'll be very thankful and praising god for elders there'll be times where it's tough to be in a church with some of the decisions elders are making regardless jesus christ is lord of the church he is the chief shepherd He is perfect. Elders have good seasons. Elders have not so good seasons. But we give praise to Jesus Christ no matter the season. Because when elders are making good decisions and when elders are making less than good decisions, Jesus Christ is working things out in his church. And it's for that reason we can sing in just a moment, Rejoice the Lord is King, because indeed he is, over his elders and over his church. Ultimately, he rules the church. It's a government of the Lord, through his leaders, for his lambs. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your plan. At times it is um, foreign to us and, and somewhat mysterious, but oftentimes we are immensely blessed through things we don't fully understand. And we thank you for what you're doing through church elders at Emmanuel. I pray for them. I pray that you would bless them in their leadership and the wisdom and the shepherding matters they must must address. And I pray too for the church that there would be a a beautiful relationship for decades to come between the flock and the shepherd. We love you, Lord, and we give this church to you seeking to follow you where you lead us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.